0: Welcome to Restoration, uh, the Beautiful Things Radio, the production of Restoration Radio, read written by True Restoration Media. And um, streaming videos for purchase or download are available on truerestorationmedia.com. You are listening to the Sweet Espinola with number one, number one, Opus 47, titled Sevilla. Sevilla. Uh, tonight's broadcast, we will attempt to answer the question, is there a Catholic perspective on the arts? I'm your host, Magdalene Zapp, and today I'm joined by Stephen Heiner, an arts fan and world traveler. Um, our theme picture for the beautiful things is a picture of Cardinal Newman, if you're on the website. Obviously, here so you can see it. Um, Cardinal Newman is renowned for... Revitalization of liberal arts among Catholics in the late 19th century, and for his book um, *The Idea of University*, which holds many a gem for Catholics today. I thought we might take a a quote of his as a a touchstone for the entire show um, from here on out. Um, So he says, "We attain to heaven by using this world well, though it is to pass away. We perfect our nature." not by undoing it, but by adding to it what is more than nature and directing it towards aims higher than its own. To me, that seems not only um, to uh, not only my aspiration as a Catholic, but my aspirations as a writer and as an artist as well. Um, Stephen, is there anything that you'd like to add to that?
1: No, I'm obviously a big fan of Idea of a University. Um, I did... Um, I did a whole class on the Oxford movement and uh Cardinal Newman in undergrad, so um really enjoyed Idea of the University. I feel like that's required reading. I mean if you're if you're a Catholic or even just anyone who has an interest in learning, um and you went to college, you should read Idea of the University. It's pretty it's pretty great.
0: Does that mean that you you actually read the whole thing cover to cover?
1: <laughs> I did. I
0: did. <laughs> I have to admit I've only read bits and pieces. But uh, before we lose ourselves in conversing about this this topic, I wanted to give our listeners a breakdown of what we'll be discussing today. Uh, we won't be taking any calls, but we do welcome and appreciate your commentary on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at True Restoration. Um, but um, so we'll be discussing. We'll start with the contemporary uh, definitions of art. And we'll move to uh, the classical definition and the Catholic definition. So um, let's, let's kick off with our contemporary open space definition, so much as the general idea of uh, the contemporary idea of art. And um, to begin with, there's two two major definitions, um, Plato's in the Republic, which we'll go into further and Kant. Kant is the, the reigning contemporary uh, definition, philosophy. So Kant says, art is a kind of representation that is purposive in itself and though without an end, nevertheless promotes the cultivation of the mental powers for sociable communication, meaning that there is no purpose to art, but it engages the mind for conversation, so art is meant to provoke social intercourse, which seems rather... Useless. Well, not useless, but it's not very. Well, it's great. It's great
1: for co- it's great for cocktail parties.
0: <laughs> and you would know.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, I, I yeah, I totally, I entirely agree. But you know, it's interesting how sometimes we'll we'll hear modern artists laud um, the opposing interpretations of their work of, of artwork. And, like, when you go to a gallery or something like that, you know, they all sit around and dispute about, oh, what do you think it meant, you know, and it uh, seems like there's, like, this, it's like a Hegelian style idea that art is good if it fulfills a function as a cause of discussion, that the person of the art is fulfilled if we come to a realization of personal truth, quote-unquote, um, from discussing a opposing interpretation. I think that's that's a, a fair fair interpretation of, like, what modern philosophy states
1: about it. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think I, I, the glorification of, you know, um, my, you know, I have an opinion. And because I, I have the power of speech, you know, my opinion means something. Um, it reminds me, Dr. Thomas Fleming, who's, who's one of my favorite teachers, once said, uh, you know, when someone starts saying, I don't know much about art, but he's like, just feel free to stop listening, um, to whatever they say after that. So this, what you just I think referred to as the definition, is the empowerment. That idea, that definition, is the empowerment of anybody can have a valid idea of you know what is art or what is good art. And I think obviously that that's a starting point. Of a, that's a it's a rather problematic starting point.
0: Well, we could say it's a starting point of you know breaking down the whole idea of democracy for one thing, but you know we won't we won't go there. <laughs> is um, more plebeian kind of does away this within the idea of a hierarchy or anything like that, or you know those who know more can ha- can sp- can speak on the subject. Um, but moving on, uh, modern art seems to say that um, you know contemporary philosophies um, have gone regarding a site they've gone one step further and they question whether art can or should be defined, which which kind of goes back to what we were saying before. You know, if we put limitations on what it is, then we put limitations on who can can make a statement about what a, a, a specific piece of art was meant to be or what it was meant to express. you um, think that's true.
1: Hmm. Well... Again, I... Uh, I mean, ob- it, it's just a,
0: when, it doesn't seem like it, it's a... Like, if you put limitations on, on something, then you're saying it, it can only be this thing. And then, you know, in modern art, it's very much, you nobody know, has like, surrealism and cubism and, and what is Impressionism, like the beginning of of, artis- of the, like, contemporary artistic endeavor. And it's yeah. like, well, it, you know... You think that's what it is? That's that's great for you. Hmm. Anyway, um, modern art. So when we place limitations on art, it ceases to be the independent expression of the artist, and it purely serves an ideological function um, rather than a philosophical one. So basically, you know, it's take religious art. You know, we're we're promoting the ideology of Catholicism, which as Catholics we would say, well, that's not such a bad thing. Um, but, you know, in our modern day and age where anything is anything that promotes an ideology of any type is looked down on, then essentially art, art as well would be coming under the gun of, of contemporary thought. Um, but as Catholics, we would argue that almost everything serves an ideological function,
1: right? Yes, I agree. But remember, we don't think that ideology is a, a, a you know, a dirty word. Um, remember from the modern <laughs> world that, you know, ideology, it means you believe in something that's fixed and unchanging. Well, that's just...
0: And therefore... Not that's just not, that's not
1: admissible, right?
0: Um, in my research, I... I, I came across a quote, and we'll be pull, I pulled a lot of quotes from Newman from, from his book Idea of the University, and they were hard to get to, trying to that book. Because I knew Newman had, um, or my thoughts, I should say, were more in line with Newman's ideas, but trying to find quotes that specifically pinpointed them was difficult. Anyway, he said, uh, with the rise in popular arts, quote, an obsolete discipline maybe be a present heresy, And I thought that was a really interesting statement to make. Um, At the time, he was referencing the late 19th century rise in the popularity of Gothic architecture, the idea of lauding too much the aspects of certain types of artistry, failing to see it in its proper context or seeing it as something to be praised in itself rather than as a conduit to contemplation of something more. And it seems like we see that today. So, you know, even if we see we see things that look nice, but a lot of times they don't um they aren't reflective of this the, the idea of like transcendental beauty or, or something higher than just having something look nice. It's like praised for its own sake. Um then maybe like the pre Raphaelite painters. Are kind of you know kind of like that? Would you would you do you think that's true?
1: I mean, you yeah, be careful, Pre-Raphaelites. That's uh, pretty heavy in the trad world. Um, oh, I know, a, I know. It's that's that's so that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a favorite of the uh, the traditional Catholic movement is Pre-Raphaelite art. So you have to tread carefully, Maggie.
0: Yes, uh, yes, I do agree with you, uh, mainly because I think we appreciate it from that at higher standpoint. In certain instances. I'd say probably in most instances, but I guess it's a question of whether, you know, what was the artist intending, um, versus what we as viewers appreciated for. Um, anyhow, um, so he, he argued, he, his fear was that it would just be, you know, certain types of art would just be, um, praised too much for their own sake. Um, and still others argue against defining art by saying, well, art may or may not serve multiple purposes so it's hard to pin it down and say art is meant only to do this. Um, do you agree with that? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, it's like Lady or the Tiger here, Maggie. You're presenting me with, with bad <laughs> bad choices in, in either way. Um, again, I think this ties into... What we started, what you started with, with, with Kant's definition, so if if art is purposeless in the beginning, um, and it's simply, you know, something pleasant to engage in, and, and Cardinal Newman had to fight against this uh, in the Oxford movement, where he was dealing with people in England of his day who was saying, you know, morals are a matter of taste you know so well sure you're religious but you know that's just a matter of taste it isn't something that's enduring that's part of an order so here i think what you're referencing is it does art serve a purpose or multiple purpose does it not or it only does this again it is part of this this subjective universe that that doesn't want to commit to to This is good art, this is bad art, because maybe we 're afraid of hurting someone 's feelings. I think in some way, I think that's part of it, but it 's also because everyone's entitled to their own opinion, and no one no one 's opinion is is more right than someone else's
0: well it's certainly true that it, it's grounded on subjectivity um, so, you know, we say there's an objective definition of art, and we say that that idea is best exemplified in the artwork of European tradition then it doesn't, you know, they'll say, well, that doesn't count for the many forms of artwork that exist outside of the Western world, um, all of the artwork from, like, the Japanese prints that they have, which which I, I admit there, I find many of them to be very attractive, but uh, at the same, I you know, objectively attractive, but um, I guess the question remains, is there an objective definition of art, or is art intrinsically so subjective that it cannot even be defined?
1: Um. Well, I mean, I think I think there is definitely such a thing as good art, and there's, there's certainly such a thing as bad art. And there's, and, and then I think the a, a bit more of a difficult thing is is that art or is that not art? I think sometimes there can be things that push push the boundary. But as far as uh, non-Western works, we have a beautiful exhibit here in Kansas City right now um, called Journey Through Mountains and Rivers, and they're uh, Chinese landscapes done. Um, on these really long scrolls. And these scrolls are opened up like once every 10 years. Oh, Absolutely wow. beautiful. The brushwork is amazing. And there's a lot of allegorical things. It reminds me of Eastern iconography. So I mm. I don't know. A, my Chinese is poor. I think the the Chinese characters can tell you, you know, what is going on. But the other thing is you're forced to sort of look at the scene as a whole. So these these things go from wall to wall. They're very, very long. But I think if I think about one of the highest forms of art, which I consider Byzantine iconography, there's a lot of similarity here with the Chinese, uh, at least in these. And these date back to um, some of the 10th century, right? So around the Byzantine time, it's actually not that surprising that, you know, not that far from the Byzantines, the Chinese are doing something similar in, in artwork. But, yeah, you you see these people walking. There's a journey. um, there's mists in certain parts of the journey, um, so sorry, going back to what you're asking, you know it, can I judge something by the European tradition? Well, I, I think there are some things in the Eastern tradition which still would 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 qualify has the characteristics that we're, we're we're holding up in the Western tradition, so in some ways it's it's not just the Western tradition you could say you know the an ancient tradition and and apply it to different parts of the world in which we have similarities.
0: Which, of course, would derive the fact that we all have the same human nature, we all have a tendency toward to move toward God, um which you know modern man is really trying to downplay
1: well, that's very um, ideological of you
0: <laughs> well it would be i'm I'm a famous <laughs> <ideologicalist>. <laughs> Um so uh, but so in in that sense though you know we, we can say, well yes. Yeah, you know, some things are objectively art. You know, some things are are not. Um, but what 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 can we say is it that makes something objectively a work of art? Is it popular acclaim? I mean, the same question's been applied to literature. Is a classical work of literature considered classical because it fulfills a set of necessary requirements, or because it has stood the test of time? Um, you know, what would what would you say it is?
1: Well, I think in that sense, it's it's harder because we, you know, we refer to modern classics and some, you know, modern classics actually are modern classics, but really the question is, will we still be talking and reading about them a hundred years ago? Well, neither you nor I will be around, you know, to know whether it really became a class. I think some things are are, are fairly obvious. Some things are a bit more borderline.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to move now to the uh, the classical um, definition of art. I'm going to get a little bit into Plato and Aristotle. Um, we of course could go if we went into into their ideas in any detail. It'd take a whole other show, so it'll be very simplistic versions of their definitions. Um, so Plato believes that imitation really takes the viewer farther away from the truth and the true nature of things, which is his idea of this copy of a copy of a copy, um, thrice removed. He also states that artistic talent is something of a fluke, a divine gift that requires no honing, it's just something that, that happens mm-hmm. to artists, um, and, an artists meant in the conventional yeah. form of the, the term, not artists as in you know, a carpenter or an architect. So artists when evaluated in this light are pretty worldly human beings, people who have no function in society more than anything, they're liars who leave deception into the minds of the easily influenced. that's a fairly strong condemnation of artists. I don't I haven't having not read Plato, I admit, and his theory of aesthetics, I, I can't say how true to uh his his mentality that would be. But um but then so it doesn't really answer the question though about our sensei experiences. Or our experiential experiential knowledge, um, which it seems like that's what attracts us to art. Don't you think? Yes. Yes.
1: But, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, we're talking about a world of difference between Plato and and others in this way. So if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, we'll be here for at least another hour.
0: (laughs) Well, we are going to be touching on the rabbit hole a little bit in the sense that, you know, we're going to be discussing sensate knowledge and, and how we know what we know, which is how Thomas Aquinas came to his understanding of it in the first place. Um, so, uh, but I wanted to, so that, that's Aristotle, or uh, Plato's definition or ideas on art. Um, that it, it's kind of lowly. Um, the only one he really had respect for was the finer, or what he saw as like the, the higher arts. Ordered, ordered, ordered arts, which I think we could say up until, say, uh, probably the Renaissance, maybe, that, that that mentality was what held sway with the, the Gothic architecture and um, the icons, and, and everything had some sort of symbolism, symbolism and symmetry. Um, but then, from we also have Aristotle's ideas. Which were that, that imitation is a form of education. And he didn't have so much of an idea on aesthetics, per se, as uh, art art being a learning experience. So um, we see Aristotle's method, method of thinking about art um, and a lot in the mo- modern art world, I guess. Um, but Aristotle really granted more merit to artistry and to the artist. Which is nice for us artists, you know, throw me a bone here, but um but it seems like it seems like historically Plato and Aristotle were hashing it out they were they were opposed to each other until until Thomas Aquinas came along, although he never really technically had a definition per se on art, which I find surprising, actually, considering how much he spoke about it. Um, uh, so so just to be clear Plato and Aristotle they had varying views on art mainly because they had two different views on the beautiful Uh, for Plato what was aesthetically beautiful was purely sensate and therefore lower, less noble and what was transcendentally beautiful would be found in skilled sciences like architecture for Aristotle, though beauty was just a, it was a non consideration. His theory was more directed towards knowing a thing by imitation using the senses. So, even though Thomas Aquinas never had, never formulated a theory specifically on art, uh, we can extrapolate from his body of work what the theory would have been. And uh, he certainly has thoughts on beauty um, as a transcendental or, or universal. Stephen, did you, when you were in, in college and, and since you were in college, have you read extensively at all anything Thomas, St. Thomas Clients had to say on on his aesthetic theory?
1: Uh, I've been, I've, I have to confess that my mystic reading has been much more summa and summa contra Gentilis. so I've been not focusing on art or aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I have to... Confess, I'm guilty. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I I guess it's a. I didn't even realize that he would have. And and when I was researching it, it was actually very difficult to research because um so many so few people have tried have 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 looked at his body of work to try to come up with a, a thesis or how how would a Thomas Saint Thomas have thought of this. So when I was doing the research for this show. Uh, I came across an article called The the Platonic Aristotelian Hybridity of Aquinas' Aesthetic Theory Um, from the Horselist Journal for Medieval Studies. We'll be posting it on Twitter for our followers to take a look at It's a fairly long article, but it's a great article. I definitely recommend it to our listeners. Um, The author... I'm going to read a quote here from the author, Daniel Gallagher. And uh, he stated... Even as Aquinas of erases these Aristotelian notions of nature and knowledge, he does not discard the Platonic notion of transcendental beauty. God is super beautiful, and things, insofar as their existence, participate in the existence of God, are beautiful in a thoroughly transcendental way. Supersensible beauty is primary in the sense that beauty exists most perfectly and fully in God. A sensible beauty is primary in the sense that our initial knowledge of the beautiful comes through the perception of the essential aesthetic characteristics of integrity, proportion, and clarity. So essentially, St. Thomas grants that we learn through the senses and the arts, and as he calls it, aesthetic beauty, and that they're a necessary and legitimate avenue of experiential knowledge. Also you know, good for, for anybody who is an art lover or uh, a, uh, an artist the difficult subject to, uh, understand. Um, so he, he counters this idea, though, uh, with the fact that things are only transcendentally beautiful, and so far as they participate in or reflect the existence of God, who is supremely beautiful, and that's where we get the, the hybridity of, uh, Aristotle and Plato in St. Thomas's Aesthetics. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Stephen?
1: Well I mean obviously it's St Thomas and it it oh, happens to accord you, can't say, you, can't disagree with him. <laughs> you know i am I'm waiting for some cosmic hammer to to come get me if I if I disagree with St Thomas but but no I I obviously it accords with my own idea that art does have an end uh that there is a purpose to it and and furthermore it's not just some random purpose but it's ordered towards the higher if we want to use the phrase the good the true the beautiful um that uh, that obviously is is the understanding, and when you're talking about that, that super beautiful idea of God, that that is the, obviously, where we would bend the bow the highest, but that that's, our eyes are focused up there. Um, thinking of the Zora Neil Hurston book, Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, if you think about, you know, what what is the action of that sentence? So I think, obviously, with, with St. Thomas' um, idea of, this being ordered specifically to God, I obviously can't do anything other than agree. <laughs> can't do anything other than well, agree. Of
0: course. Right. Right. And I know, you know, I know you're a lover of 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 certain uh, pieces of art that we say are more modern, not necessarily, you know, what we know of as contemporary art. But at the same time, you, you definitely see, um, like, iconography as being... Um, Higher arts, more worthy art, and and I was interested. Would you would you care to go into why?
1: <laughs> well, um, I, obviously part of my answer has to, has to do with me not wanting to be scolded by by Bishop Sandborn. Um, so, <laughs> and, and the other part, I actually truly believe. So, um, I, I think it seems, very,
0: uh, it seems very Platonian of you, Platonic, <laughs> but not, you know. <laughs>
1: Well, or maybe just very expedient. Um, I think that part of part of why um, Bishop Sanborn would argue, and, and I would agree, that some of these earlier forms of art or higher forms of art is because they're asking you to engage um, a, a bit more. So, for example, if I deliver a song or uh, a video to you, or I sing something to you. It's different from me sliding across the sheet music or describing what the scene looks like to you or having you read something because what is required then is you're actually going to have to do some work. Your brain is going to have to construct, according to your gifts and your faculties, what that construct is. Whereas if I sing it to you or if I give it to you or if I draw it for you, Um, it's going to, yes, it will engage your other senses, but it means that you also don't necessarily have to bring those into play. And so, when you look at Byzantine art, some of the, the more, some people would say, difficult or, uh, primitive iconography, I think what, what is great about what's going on with that art is there are often things in the art that are challenging you, um, to think about themes. Um, and with, A more sensate, a more modern form of art, sometimes they're just trying to fill all that in for you. So you don't necessarily have to go to that level. So, um, yes, I have a real appreciation for iconography. I have some icons in my house. I wish I had more. Um, But yes, I I have to also confess, and now you've made me confess it publicly um, on an international (laughs) broadcast... (laughs) <laughs> that i li- that i like uh, other forms of art which which are a bit more sensate but i think this again, this again goes back to uh where is the art being ordered to so uh, there are different degrees of order so some art will take you to those higher thoughts faster or shall we say it will make you ascend the seven story mountain <laughs> perhaps faster uh
0: Can I or cuz i think <laughs> you're going <at> that point. <laughs> Um, so would you assert that appreciation of a subject or, or where it's meant to lead you is necessarily much higher if you have to work to get at it? Because, I mean, that's, that's where it seems like, you know, you're talking about like engaging and whatnot, and and the whole purpose of the engaging is in order to appreciate it more. Because, I mean, to be honest, like, if I sat down and I looked at a beautiful painting, or if I, you know, have someone sing me a song or if I sat down and watched a song and it was very beautiful, I could see it moving more, moving me more and being more appreciative of it than if, you know, you gave me the, the music sheets and told me, hey, this is a great song. <laughs> you'd be like, okay, I probably wouldn't even bother to do it. So maybe, you know, God takes it my
1: could could i make an argument that the things you have to work for the most are often the things that you most appreciate i think i think beck recently released an album that was just sheet music um so he didn't even cut the album so he released the he released the music which meant that he expected everybody to do either covers or their own versions of what he had done which which i think is a very interesting way to release an album but i mean if you like beck you're going to have to work a lot harder <laughs> to enjoy that album. Um, and so I think to this, and I'm not saying that hard work alone is what makes you enjoy it. I, I, I hope I'm not giving that impression. I think what I'm trying to say is because it engages that uh, faculty or it engages those um, instincts in you, that I think that it's naturally... Um, I think it's challenging us more, and I think if art does something other than direct us to the good, the true, and the beautiful, um, we can measure it by how much it challenges us to engage our own intellect and our own faculties. And so by that measure, yes, I, I might say it, it actually is, versus just delivering it for me on a platter, you know, with, with all, and I'm thinking of, of Roger van der Weyden's Crucifixion, uh, taking down from the cross, rather sorry, and it is just absolutely beautifully done. I'll, I'll make sure I get a link to that up on our Twitter feed. But the the, the colors are so vivid, and um, you're you know you're 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 drawn into that almost you know the color and 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 how that looks as opposed to the scene itself. And I'm not saying you you won't be drawn into the scene. The scene's quite quite well done, but I'm distracted by by his technique and his colors there. Whereas when you're looking at iconography i don't want to say you're distracted but you're drawn to the other aspects the other things that you're trying to figure out um within that um and we see this somewhat in stained glass you know later on um where something that's speaking to the you're you're going on a journey to understand that piece of art and that and that in itself is is also a worthwhile addition to the piece of art itself
0: I mean, I can see your point. I definitely can see your point. Um, I know it sounds like I'm going to disagree with you, but I'm not really. Um, You know, but at the same time, I guess it's like, you know, I have an appreciation for certain art pieces that teach something, which allegories and um, things like uh, the the Byzantine iconography that you were speaking of, they definitely do. Um, But at the same time, isn't there something to be said for that that Aristotelian or uh idea of just, you know, a pure a sensate experience? You know, where you have an appreciation for something without it necessarily being a an in your face teaching moment. You know? I I, I just tend to to question sometimes i mean I, I i do truly appreciate some of the most of the iconography but at the same time though it, it doesn't strike me as being beautiful just because it's religiously oriented um and it, does that make sense
1: <laughs> yeah don't? yes it does oh
0: okay what do you what do you have to say can you speak on that a little bit
1: um you're asking, does it, you're trying to make the distinction about having, having to have it be religiously oriented.
0: Well, I mean, yes. I mean, not necessarily like religiously oriented either because, you know, I mean, it's not like the Chinese had the, the true religion, but like you're saying, it's, 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 there was something new to find. It was all representative of a lot of their, or the artwork that you were speaking of. It had like a lot of little symbolism in it. But, you know, I mean, not everyone appreciates that. I mean, not appreciates. I guess they would in the context. You're almost obliged to appreciate it, really, because it's religious-oriented towards the true religion. But um, it's like I, I don't always want to have a teachable moment. I just sometimes I just want to enjoy things. And that The way that sounds to me is almost, you know, juvenile.
1: I don't want (laughs) to (laughs) learn.
0: Well, I I mean, when I look at like a pre-Raphaelite, even if it's, um, or or at least that there's a statue of our Lord, and it's particularly gruesome, and it's right after the scourging, and he's just covered in blood, and but at the same time, it has such impact. Or you could say the same thing about, you know, the uh, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion movie you know, had such impact as an artistic piece because it was so... Although I'm sure he included lots of symbolism in it, um, but because it was so intensely realistic or, you know, it appealed to our senseate experience, you know? Uh, anyhow, moving on. Um <laughs> so we we established like you were saying, you know there's ends to everything, there has to be an end to art, as Catholics, we have to think to believe that there is an end to art, and um God is our final end, and, and art should art should reflect that and I mean, I would assert that any failure um and the fulfillment of that purpose precludes it from being a true work of art so I mean I don't even know if you could say there is such a thing as bad art i mean I, I suppose in the context of well, I get what that person was trying to do, but they just didn't do it very well. You could say that something is bad art, but anything beyond that is—I is, would just say, like we were, we were talking about in the pre-show, we were talking about uh, Salvador Dali um, a little bit, and uh, I have my guns out for Dali. I can't—I Dolly's i have no appreciation for for that sort of artwork. Not to sound too subjective. Because so I believe it's objectively not art. Would you agree with that?
1: Hmm. I think I'll save that for our our, our section when we're going to talk about different pieces of art.
0: Oh. Okay. Because I, I don't want to get
1: side. Don't want to get side because we <laughs> that could definitely be a longer discussion.
0: <laughs> okay. Well. Um, so. I guess there's there's two. It seems like we've covered like two different points, and we've covered. Um, the end to which the artist is directing the piece and the end to which um, the uh, the viewer um, is directed, um, which is which is obviously two different ends, um, that I think they both have to be directed towards God. The artist has to direct the piece towards God and the viewer needs to be directed by the piece of art towards God. Um, however, I need to do a station, I um, I wanted to let our listeners know what they're listening to rest, uh, The Beautiful Things Rest Radio, it's underwritten by True Restoration, uh, Restoration Radio and True Restoration Press. Um, we aren't taking any calls today, but you are more than welcome to contact us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is at True Restoration, and we definitely appreciate your thoughts on the subject. Um, so let's move on. We were going to discuss the uh, some do some comparisons of different pieces of art. Um, I have a personal uh, love of the Renaissance, more the Renaissance artists. And so the pieces that I wanted to pick out, which we will be posting on our Twitter feed, are uh, Lee Krasner's the Sun Woman. She was uh, a contemporary artist from the 60s and 70s. And uh, let me see. She was. Um, have you did you have you seen that painting before, Stephen? The Sun Woman.
1: No, I haven't.
0: Well, it is particularly uh, grotesque, I think. Um, there's no woman, identifiable woman in it at all. Um, and it, it's it's very... I, it's definitely nothing I would ever, ever hang in my house. Um, and, and I just don't I, don't... I don't even understand why the painting... I mean, perhaps that's the, the point of the painting, is just that to sit there and question why. It's called The Sun Woman, um, let uh, I'm gonna post it on our Twitter feed. Uh, but it's it's awful colors. A lot of lines It, it reminds me of. Did you ever do you this when you were a kid? You know, you, you you on a paper when you draw on a paper, and you just do a bunch of squiggles and lines, and you cross all the lines all over each other, and then you color them in with different colored crayons, a little different sections. Or, or sometimes they have those in the kids' books. You know, where you draw draw all the parts that say A, and then you come up with an apple. You know, mm-hmm. did that when you were a kid? Yes. That's what it reminds me of because it's except for there's no picture in there. It's not like oh okay I see what she did and, and there's the sun woman. Um, and what we're juxtaposing that against is uh, Vermeer's uh, The Astronomer. And um, I-, I wanted to take those two pieces because they're Kind of related, and obviously, Vermeer paintings are very. He he used a lot of light and a lot of shadow. Um, pick the painting that Vermeer did of the astronomer. He's he's handling a globe. He's obviously looking at it. There's an obvious picture there. Um, um, it it looks like something, and it makes you wonder why. And it's just it's a beautiful piece. Uh, it kind of it you know. Makes me think of, you know, wonder, and I think that's that's as a as a minor or an aspiration to philosophy myself. It's it's wonder is a good thing, um, and uh, it just looks like the the astronomer is is wondering as he places his hand on the globe. He's just wondering about, you know, the world. So um, as compared to like the sun woman, which says absolutely nothing well if you can call us back we're going to talk about the couple of poems because when we're talking about art, the arts we're not just talking about painting by itself we're talking about the whole we could say sculpture and uh, literature all of literature so poetry and fiction um, anything that we could say um, counts as an artwork Um, but I wanted to take two different poems. One is, uh, Chesterton's The Unpartable, Unpardonable Sin, and the other one is The Train Whistle by Jane Bierson. And we're going to take those two works and juxtapose them against each other. Um, they're just clips. I'm not taking the entire pieces. Um, the first one is called, uh, to The Train Whistle by Jane Beerson. Um, he says, I do not live here. This is where I stay. Horns of trains blare like old Buicks, Wake you up along the bay, our new century. So there's no, and in this little poem, there's no punctuation at all. Um, Because like with modern art, they're trying to get rid of the whole genres and um, all those, uh, you know, no rules, no form, just experience. Um, And of course, I, 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 I I do not appreciate that. I think it's more or less stupid, um, because words, I, I don't see how they can, words have a form in themselves. There's only so far you can take that, and I don't see the purpose of it. Um, it's 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 going back to the whole idea that there's no real purpose in art. It's just meant to be, Just you're just supposed to experience it, and, and that's it. Um, so, versus Chesterton's poem called The Unpartimal Sin, he says, I do not cry, beloved. Neither curse, silence, and strength; these two, at least, are good. He gave me sun and start, and aught he could, but not a woman's love, for that is hers. Which I thought was a really—it's uh, a beautiful. It has a rhyme scheme, it has a form, it has punctuation, um, it has a really has a nice meter, and then it has a, a lovely point at the end too. That you know, God gives us all of these. Wonderful things, uh, but he can't give away a woman's love because that, that brings up free will and our our ability to actually give something, which which is a beautiful th- thought for for lovers everywhere. Uh, we're coming up actually on our uh, the end of our 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 hour here, so I wanted to do the. Uh, so wrap. We're, we wanted to remind our, our listeners all of our pieces are going to be posted on our Twitter feed. Except for, I believe the the poetry pieces might be too long. But what I'll do is I'll find a we got to find a link and we'll we'll post that on there. So, but my fear uh, is that classical art, as we understand it, is dead. And I remember at one point Newman. Newman stated that that literature is dead. He firmly believed that England was no longer, or England, the Western world, the English-speaking world, was no longer capable of producing uh, good literature. And, you know, if, if, he's, if, if he's talking about the arts in general, I don't know if you remember, but a while back they had this uh, beautiful old fresco in this church that this Italian woman painted over, and she genuinely thought that she was doing a good job um, she genuinely thought that she was doing a good job, but it was really just, if, if you've ever seen it, and I will, again, post that to Twitter, um, uh, it is really atrocious. It looks cartoonish, and, and basically like, you know, I mean, my five-year-old, I, I'm not going to say my five-year-old could have drawn better, because that's not true, but it was pretty close to what a five-year-old could do, which which it's, it goes to show how bad it was. And the problem is, I question whether we're even capable of producing anything of that high of a caliber, since it seems like we're losing the mediums, So oil painting, and and you know they're starting to get away from the traditional mediums. They want to deal with stuff with like you know cereal. Let's do let's do art in cereal or hair or you know any sort of these odd odd mediums. We're losing the ability um, because. I mean if you try to go and, and and find somebody who specializes in say uh the Dutch masters which it was very unbelievable that my parents were able to find somebody like that but they're extremely rare and hard to find It or even if you go, you go on Etsy or you know anywhere where you can find paintings like that they're they're extremely difficult to to find and typically there's nothing new there's a lot of copies so We're losing the mediums, we're losing the ability, and finally, we're losing, we're not losing, but not everyone has the talent to be able to do it. Those who do have it, they go to art class, they're going to be stuffed into contemporary art. So, you know, unless we bring it back as Catholics and really try to um, uh, start start up the traditional arts all over again, um, it might be lost for good. Um, um, however, so because unlike the face, art is not a living thing. And the number of traditional artists using traditional mediums, it's all dying away. Um, but uh, the other question is, too, perhaps modern society, we've all become so utilitarian that things that used to be called an art, they're now relegated to mere professions and we've all heard the phrase he's so good at it he's elevated it to an art form like carpentry remember when they used to make beautiful chairs it seems like we lose the idea behind art and favor utility instead and the loss of that higher purpose also reduces artistic ability and craftsmanship if you consider that you know I mean, I've seen some beautiful up in St. Mary's. They had a, a workman, um, not a workman, a craftsman, I should say, a carpenter who did uh, the back, the wooden back piece um, for one of the local restaurants um, for their bar. And I remember sitting there thinking that it was, it was, it was a beautiful piece of, of, of artwork. Um, the, and you just can't, you can't really find that anymore unless you go to somebody who's who's highly specialized in it. Um, uh, but so so that was my question. What risks do you think we run by losing the Catholic or, or the traditional perspective on art?
1: Well, again, this goes, this goes back to what you started with, which was the contemporary definition of art. If we if we lose the Catholic or the traditional perspective on art, then we lose a basis of judgment. We lose a starting point. We lose an objective standard from which to to judge something. And and again. Back to what you had asked about, you know, I, well, I don't, you know, I don't need a teachable moment every moment. I think that's a fair point. I think the issue, however, is um, what um, what having standard means. It means that sometimes, you know, I'm not indulging in a high form of art. I'm looking at something that's lower, but I'm at least admitting that. Whereas if I don't have an objective standard, well, then everything's the same. Andy Warhol is the same as Fra Angelico. It's all the same, and it's all your opinion. And that there is such a thing as good poetry. There is such a thing as good music. There is such a thing as good art. And if you lose the traditional definition, or the Catholic definition, I think that you're really sort of rudderless.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I don't think Newman foresaw that a modern man would descend so low. I remember reading or he conjectured one time that he thought that if artists were as a whole would lose the face, which they obviously have. He thought their creations would be having lost the face, he thought their creations would be of high genius, quote unquote, and beautiful, but that they would also be evil. Which which I find an interesting, I mean I disagree with that statement. Um, he thinks well he says that and then he says like in terms of their being evil that they would directly or indirectly minister to corrupt nature and the powers of darkness. Because, and the reason why I disagree with that is I don't disagree that they're evil and that they, they minister to, to corrupt nature and the powers of darkness. But I disagree that they're beautiful. It seems to me that artists aren't producing beautiful works of high genius. When I look at that painting of the Sun Woman, I'm disgusted. It's like they, they want to glorify fallen nature and it's representative of what they're trying to do. Because it's just it's ugly. It's, fallen nature is not something to be to be glorified. So, um, so we we've, we've discussed the uh, disastrous philosophy of contemporary art. We came to um, we discussed St. Thomas Aquinas's synthesis of Plato and Aristotle. Um, what do you think our our takeaway from this is other than the the point that you made?
1: Don't buy that well, art. I, well, I thought what we might, and, and um, you know, I'm sorry, I had dropped off, so I, and as I was trying to get back on, I only heard snatches of the show, and I know that you talked about one thing, but I thought maybe we could each pick something that we really think is art uh, and talk about why, why we like it just briefly, and I think that might put. Because we've been talking about art and at, at the risk of just being a theoretical show, and we have posted some stuff on Twitter, but I think it would be helpful to our listeners to to hear you talk about a particular piece of art you like um so if you're not quite prepared for that, I'm ready to go with a piece if you'd like.
0: Oh, please feel free. I'm just trying to figure out which one, like you know to say there's a favorite that's that's a hard you know narrowing it down.
1: <laughs> Um so I uh, I'm going to I'm going to cheat and go back to Vermeer uh, because you you had asked about that earlier and um one of the prints that I own I very proudly brought back from from one of my earliest visits to Europe is the Allegory of Painting and I'll have that up on Twitter in a moment um uh so that way people I should wait a moment so people can look it up uh, on the internet uh and and follow Talking about, um, okay. So if you look at, at the painting itself, the allegory of painting, and if you haven't found it, just pause on the podcast and find it. Um, several things I, I really love about this piece. One, I I love the 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 you know, Velasquez's Las Meninas, where you have a painter painting himself painting. The skill required to do that. Keep in mind this is before computers this is before digital cameras this is before any of that um to be able to visualize yourself painting and then paint that accurately fantastic um on top of that we are watching him paint a subject so and you can see the beginnings of it there the curtain is pulled back so we know that we're seeing what the artist does, and this is, you know, who, who gets to see this kind of scene other than a benefactor or a, a family friend or something, someone that Vermeer would tolerate inside his studio while he works. You see, mm-hmm. within the studio, things that are reflective of higher things. If you look at the, look, even the floor, the floor is beautiful, well ordered, this checkered um, pattern. Uh, the painter is well dressed. As he paints, he's not, uh, you know, in jeans and a t-shirt. And you look at you look at the chandelier. Uh, it, it, it's it's not uh, lavish, but it, it's simple and beautiful. And you look at the wall map to think about the detail that you had to do within the wall map, which isn't even part of the, isn't really even the focus of the painting. It's almost an afterthought. Like, well, of course, the artist studio has some beautiful things. Even the curtain, which is pulled back, has such magnificent detail, and the light that's coming in through the window, you know, it's that. I would judge an early morning light with that brightness coming in bright at the at the left hand side of the painting and then dimming through the rest, just perfectly captured and that 's where you see those shadows on the canvas of where Vermeer himself is painting that light hitting hitting his arms and body in that way to create those shadows the thought the intellect the um just perfect capturing. There's a reason this is in my dining room. Um, I could go. i sorry. I could go on for uh, uh, on and on about it for another. No, I don't. I just, don't
0: blame you. I don't blame you at all because I mean I think Vermeer was an absolute genius in his and and there, there's you know there's so many of them uh, that are that are like that. Um, Rembrandt. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Rembrandt as well. Um, and like you said, I have a. When I was a kid, not to distract from you, but I'll let you go on in a minute. But when I when I was a kid, I had a my mother had a book of prints from a lot of these uh, the Renaissance artists, and I remember thinking, I just or just flipping through this book when I was a child, and like you said, I mean, there's so much you can look at on a single page as your mind tra- your eyes travel around, and it's like you discover a new thing each when you when you're looking at it, and the more you look at it. Um, I remember there was one uh, painting though so of a woman wearing a an evening gown, and I don't know what what the artist painted on or whether or not he was using oils or 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 what he was painting on if it was a canvas or what but I just remember thinking that that dress looked so real if I touched it it would be you know it would be cloth it was that real, which is in our digital age, you know i mean we can't. We have so much ability to capture everything so lifelike, and yet it's still not. It doesn't have that, that grace
1: or whatever that is
0: that those painters were able to to capture in their painting. But, but I interrupted you, Stephen.
1: No, no, no. I, like I said, I could go on for an hour. I guess I would sum it up by by shoehorning into what you just said is that you know what is good art art that you can talk about that you can you. It engages me. If I was in a gallery, sitting, you'd see me sitting on a, you know, on a bench or in a chair or standing, and just looking and trying to think through all the different actions that are going on here. And it's a very simple scene. He's painting a girl, um, you know, with a trumpet in her hand. It's a very, it's a simple scene, but there's so much going on here, and there's so much detail and beauty, and that's good art. it engages you and engages uh, again. What I had said earlier that that higher intellect. I'm. I'm. Yes, he's given me a lot, but he's also forcing me to engage. Um. So, I'll, I'll stop yeah, talking well, about speaking
0: that. Of, speaking of, like specific um, art pieces, um, I remember I went to a uh, and, and just as a demo of uh, you know you're like saying you know this type of art has a point other art does not in which case, you know, we don't consider it or I, I don't consider it art. And this is one of those I was really very excited when I went up to Washington DC and we went to the gallery there. Um, at the Smithsonian, you know, oh Smithsonian, I was so excited, the artist in me was, and we went, I was I was horribly, horribly disappointed because they had this awful um it was a uh, what do we call this? It wasn't an art like a painting. It was like an art interactive kind of a thing where you're supposed to walk through this room and they had this mechanical arm up at the, drop, up at the top um, and it, it dropped pieces, single sheets of paper every, I don't know, 10 seconds or something like that. And the whole room, the floor of the room was littered with these sheets of paper and the, the, the title of the exhibit was called Whisper. And I was, I was so disappointed. I was thinking, could we get any more idiotic? It was one of those things you walk through and you say, what is the point? I, I, it was beyond me, truly beyond me. Um, so, but, but it was amazing though the number of people that were walking through there and, and nodding their heads. And it, it almost made me wonder, you know, what what are they nodding their heads about?
1: <laughs> well, they're nodding their heads at the emperor's new clothes.
0: <laughs> yes. That, that is really what it seems like to me. And I, I felt like being a little kid being like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, I would love to be able to go to, to an exhibit and museum and, and see that, uh, like a Vermeer like saying in Europe or, or the Louvre. Is, 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 you've been to the Louvre before. Is the Louvre is, is everything that is cracked up to be?
1: <laughs> uh, side comment on the Louvre. Um, it is, uh, obviously, it's the largest museum in the world, but I always find myself overwhelmed by museums that take more than a day. Classic examples would be the Prado, the Uffizi, the um the Louvre and the Vatican Museums. I, I tend to like can I call them bite sized museums, something like the Picasso Museum or the Musee d'Orsay where it's a little easier to try to get through. Um that being said, I mean the Louvre it, is it that because, you,
0: you know, if they're bigger, they're harder to get through you know than a day, you feel like you gotta rush through and you can't not appreciate just that it. You have there. to rush
1: through it's a bit it's just so overwhelming. I mean the Louvre is just it's just so uh, huge. And, um, and you're talking about entire, there are parts of the Louvre that are larger than some museums and they're only dedicated to one particular time of art. So, I mean, but that's what happens when you have, uh, a guy who goes and goes through Europe and steals a bunch of art from other people and then brings it back to France. Oops. Sorry. Uh, did I say that out loud? Um, so you have the Louvre, um, Absolutely. I mean, if that's one thing, if you love art, if that's one one museum you get to in your life in Europe, I mean, uh, more, maybe you should argue for the Vatican Museum if you make it to Rome, but, um, because then you get to see the Sistine Chapel ceiling. So maybe the Louvre would be second place to that. Um, But yeah, um, the Allegory of Painting, um, I think is in the Louvre. I think the astronomer that you mentioned earlier—I think that is in the Louvre. But there's also a very good Vermeer um, museum uh, in the Netherlands. Oh. Anyway, you should you should share one. I, I don't I don't want to hog the share about my favorite piece of art. Time, or a favorite piece of art.
0: Well, as you know by now, our listeners don't know, but Stephen knows by now. I have a really, I have a, an absolutely phenomenally horrible. Uh, Horrible. See, I can't even remember the name right now, the name of the word that I'm talking about. Um, memory. i have a horrible memory. If we ever go on Jeopardy, I'll be the first week. Um, okay. So I have I have a painting in mind, but then I'm going to spend all this time searching for it on the Internet, and it just wouldn't work. Um, because I can't remember the name of the painter. So, unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave it at... Uh, the Astronomer that I mentioned earlier, because I, I do genuinely like that painting. It's not necessarily a the, the mindless favorite, um, but Vermeer in general is one of my favorite painters, like you mentioned, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. That is a, a, a I love that painting. Although it seems to be, it, it, it gained popularity recently almost because the, what is it, the movie that they did about the, the Vermeer, right?
1: Yes, yes. Well we but have that posted know. on tw- we have that posted on Twitter. Why don't you walk us through what you like about it?
0: I will do that then. Thank you, Stephen. Let's see here. I'm not a I'm not a I'm a recent Twitter user. Or Tweeter. Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> um, Twitterer. Twitterer, is that what
1: it is? Or maybe Twit. <laughs>
0: yeah. I that's <laughs> more appropriate. I'm a recent twit. <laughs> 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 okay, so the allegory of painting you said, which one?
1: No, uh, no, no, the astronomer. No, I, I posted the allegory of painting because that was the one I was talking about. But you oh, posted right, right. Okay. the astronomer a little earlier.
0: The, the reason it's very much the same for for the one that you said. Like, there's the the little details that you don't you don't. Um, you, you. If you spend the time to look at the painting and you don't move on, there's always something new that your eye can travel to and discover. Like I said, for me, it's it's the, I my my entire takeaway from it is the wonder. That's the general picture that I get from it. But um, Vermeer, of course, like you had mentioned in the other painting, he loves painting with windows. He loves the 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 challenge, I guess you would say, of painting with shadow. And, dark. and in this painting, likewise, there's a the window on the left and the light comes cascading in. And all of the shadows are just, are, are perfectly placed in it. Um, there's the, he has a, it's like a robe or a tablecloth, but it's mounted up on a table and it's incredibly intricate. The, the lay of the cloth, the folds of it, and all of the floral um, decor on it are all, it, it doesn't look, unnatural. It looks completely natural, like, like, like he had thrown it on, he had thrown the, the piece down, the, the clock down. Um, there's a clock on the wall. It looks like, it looks like a clock of some sort. Um, probably a, a map, I guess you would say astronomers use, something that the astronomers would use, and it's cast in shadow. Um, then there's a, he, he makes a painting of a painting, um, up on the, on the right-hand side. And it's, it's detailed. And you can see, like, ladies and dogs. It looks like it's probably, like, a, a medieval print, which, um, which is interesting because I still like never thought of the everyday man, so to speak, of the Renaissance era. You know, did they hang pictures on their walls? I always thought, you know, well, that would be something for, you know, wealthy people would have the big, huge portraits. Would, you know, the everyday man have, small, have smaller pictures? And, and apparently they did. Um but would you would not know that unless you were you had um paintings from back then that showed paintings um books on a shelf but what uh, what I really like about it is like there's all these little details and they all look so natural maybe. um and they all convey you know this astronomer uh with this sense of wonder and it makes you think you know what is you thinking? What is he? What is he hoping for? I, well, that's what I really appreciate about a painting is the story that it tells. Kind of like when, in, in that that the other Vermeer painting, Girl with a Pearl Earring, where it makes you wonder what she's thinking. I personally, you know, speaking of paintings that make you wonder what she's thinking, I know the Mona Lisa is hugely famous for for that. Um, I remember we were speaking of that one time, Stephen. How I guess there's no it did not seem like you've had much appreciation for the Mona Lisa. And I didn't have the chance to tell you at the time, but neither do I, because I, I just don't... Like, they're like, oh, the enigmatic smile. <laughs> I don't find it that enigmatic, actually. So, um, however, that's my my take on uh, The Astronomer, the one picture that I posted on uh, on Twitter. I'm actually, and actually, I think that that's a good place Good place to leave it. We'll be closing the show on, on that note. You've been listening to the inaugural episode of The Beautiful Thing. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I did. I was also nervous. so. Um, but it's brought to you by Restoration Radio, radio arm of Restoration Press. Our guest has been Stephen Heiner, world traveler and advocate of the arts. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I'm your host, Magdalene Zap. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo
1: Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to novusordowatch.org.
0: That's novusordowatch.org.